Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We've been following the stories of people leaving the U.S. to seek asylum in Canada, worried about the immigration policies of the Trump administration. I decided to walk in the forest through Canada. And it was so cold and the snow was everywhere. I don't know which direction I was going. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky, coming up near death on the Canadian border and a challenge to an international agreement. We'll try to answer a tricky question. Why is Vermont so white? And what does that mean to a young person of color? She left New England the day after her high school graduation, vowed never to come back, and has not. And if climate change means an earlier spring, what's an anxious New England gardener to do? The last frost is getting earlier, and the first frost is getting later. But at the same time, my advice to a gardener would be Find out next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, here's an important but uncomfortable question. Why is Vermont so overwhelmingly white? But first... Many recent immigrants living in the U.S. are scared that their claims for asylum won't have a fair hearing by the Trump administration. That includes people who could be killed if they are deported back to their home countries. As we've been reporting over the last few weeks, hundreds of those people are fleeing to Canada. But coming over to Canadian soil can be dangerous, and some asylum seekers have taken drastic measures. That's because of an agreement between the two countries that inadvertently encourages people to cross illegally in the frozen woods. VPR's Kathleen Masterson spoke with one man who nearly froze to death trying to flee the U.S. Mamadou is 45 years old. He fled his native country, Cote d'Ivoire, 10 years ago, escaping a brutal civil war. We're not using his full name for his protection. He applied for asylum status in the U.S., but was denied. Still, U.S. authorities deemed it unsafe to return him to his country, so he says he was granted temporary permission to stay here. Back home in Cote d'Ivoire, his father was killed by rebels, and his home was burned to the ground. Mamadou worked as a taxi driver in New York City for the last decade. But at the end of February, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents began showing up at his home to arrest him. Mamadou says if he were to be deported back to his country, he would be killed. I see I have no choice because I'm no longer safe in U.L. And they say they're going to deport me in my country and when I go out, they're going to be killed. It's hard to hear him because he's speaking from a detention center in Quebec. But how he got to Canada is a dangerous and complex story. After the agents came to deport him, Mamadou fled New York City and made his way to the Canadian border, north of Plattsburgh, New York. When he presented himself to Canadian border authorities, they denied his asylum application for procedural reasons. That's because the Safe Third Country Agreement prohibits refugees who are already in the U.S. from applying for asylum in Canada. So the Canadian authorities turned Mamadou back to the U.S. Then around 6.30 that evening... I decided to walk in the forest through Canada. And it was so cold and the snow everywhere. 
I don't know which is the direction I was going. I just walking like that in the forest, and I fall in the river two times. Mamadou walked through the snowy woods and freezing temperatures for nine hours. He encountered two rivers he could find no other way around. The first was shallow, but he says the second river was deep and wide. After that crossing, he says his body became dangerously cold. It was so dark he couldn't even see the tree branches until he felt them whip his face. He says he saw a streetlight in the distance, and he walked for nearly three hours before he reached the street. Then I saw a stop sign, writing Arete. I said, oh, Arete, that's a French wall. Maybe this is Canada. At that point, he says his whole body collapsed. The rest of the story he doesn't remember, until he woke up in a hospital bed. His clothes uh, froze on him, basically, and they had to be cut off uh, when he was brought to the hospital. That's Mamadou's lawyer, Eric Taifar. Mamadou says the police officer found him lying unconscious in the street, and after realizing he was still alive, the officer brought Mamadou to the hospital. It took six days for him to regain the ability to speak and move his limbs, during which time he was handcuffed in his hospital bed. Since he officially made a claim once, he cannot claim again. So we have a a one-claim rule here uh, in Canada. So once you've made it, uh, you can't do it ever again for life. Because Mamadou first approached the border in a legal fashion, presenting himself to Canadian authorities at the checkpoint, Mamadou inadvertently jeopardized his own chances of applying for asylum in Canada. If he'd simply walked through the woods first, crossing the border illegally between checkpoints, he could have arrived in Canada and made his first asylum claim then. That's what hundreds of refugees who are fleeing the U.S. are doing. But because he didn't know about the Safe Third Country Agreement, his claim was denied without ever getting a hearing in front of a judge. Stories like Mamadou's have some Canadian lawyers calling for the Safe Third Country Agreement to be revoked. Toronto attorney Jared Will recently filed a lawsuit in Canada, arguing that the agreement is illegal under Canadian law. The basic argument is that the U.S. doesn't respect the Refugee Convention or the Convention Against Torture, and that it should never have been designated as a safe third country by Canada. Um, But certainly now the designation should not persist. Will says there are a number of problems in how the U.S. handles refugees that could deem the country unsafe. For one, the U.S. bars people from making asylum claims if they've been in the country for over one year. If the U.S. isn't considered a safe country, then he argues Canada shouldn't be able to deny asylum seekers the right to apply in Canada simply because they already landed in the U.S. Charter question, the constitutional question, is whether it's a breach of a refugee claimant's right to life, liberty, and security of the person in Canada to deny them the right to assert a refugee claim here in circumstances where their ability to assert that claim in the United States is compromised. Will's clients are a Syrian woman and her three children. Like Mamadou, they also presented themselves at a border checkpoint, not knowing about the agreement. The lawsuit is still in its infancy. Will says it could be several months before he hears back from the courts if he has an arguable case. Mamadou's lawyer is also considering challenging the Safe Third Country Agreement. And he's in talks with attorney Jared Will about joining his lawsuit against the Canadian government. That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. The lawyer also says that Mamadou's recovery has been, quote, truly amazing. We'll let you know what happens. 
if the last few months has been confusing and concerning to those seeking asylum here, it's also thrown the process of resettling refugees into chaos. Courts have twice blocked the administration's executive orders imposing a travel ban on visitors from a group of majority Muslim countries and at least temporarily have lifted a cap on refugees. The Connecticut-based nonprofit resettlement group IRIS said this week that new refugee arrivals are being booked at least through April 28th, although that's subject to change. WNYC reporter Kari Pitkin has been following the story of one family that already made it here after being matched with the Spring Glen Alliance for Refugee Resettlement, a group based just outside of New Haven, Connecticut. Here's her story. In the week after the first travel ban was issued, the volunteers wrestled with the likelihood they'd never get the chance to meet the family they'd been hoping to welcome to Connecticut. Then on Friday, February 3rd, a federal district judge in Washington blocked key parts of the executive order. Two days later, I got this extremely enthusiastic message from one of the organizers of the Springland Alliance, Megan Kahn. They're coming tomorrow! Holy cow! Somehow, our family is arriving tomorrow. While the family from Syria was in flight over the Atlantic, I caught up with Khan at Iris. Staff member Jan Holton was giving her and a fellow volunteer a warp speed run through of what they need to take care of for the family in the coming hours. Um, all right, we have 10 minutes, so let me pick. Uh, from the smallest details, like setting up cell phones. Tell them about 911, let them know that if there's an emergency, that all they need to do is say no English, speak Arabic. To the ultimate goal of resettlement. Wanting to do everything in the world possible to help them. But the best thing we can do to help them is to help make them independent. How rare is it that things have to happen this quickly? Maybe five days has been the shortest, but less than 24 hours is pretty rare. <laughs> when the family arrived in New Haven that evening, they went to temporary housing. The pressure to get them to the U.S. so quickly meant there hadn't been time to find an apartment. Eventually, the Alliance rented them a two-bedroom place near the Long Island Sound. But it needed a lot of work. I have been scrubbing furiously the oven parts. So an army of 20 volunteers descended to clean, pick up furniture, hang blinds. Last call for Home Depot. At one point, a group of women clustered around an iPhone studying a translation app. Ask them what this word means. Trying to figure out how to say hello in Arabic. Marhaban? Then, with the apartment still mostly in disarray, a car pulls up outside. About 15 volunteers gather in a semicircle near the front door. Many of them hadn't met the family yet, so after weeks of preparation and anticipation, the room is buzzing. There's no interpreter, so most of the communicating happens through vigorous nodding and simple phrases. It's okay, yes, it's okay. The three Syrian women walk in and look around, taking in their new home and the grinning faces of the people welcoming them. The mother, Mona, looks overwhelmed and begins to cry. One of the volunteers wraps her arms around her, holding her close. Then, the women get a tour of the place. During the three minutes it took to walk through the small apartment, they say thank you 12 times. I counted. Beautiful, beautiful. A few days later, I go back to get their story this time with an interpreter. No longer packed with volunteers and cleaning supplies, their apartment is a tidy and fully furnished home. With only women present, Mona, who's 51, and her mother, Didar, leave their hair uncovered. 
I ask Mona what was going through her mind when she walked into the apartment. I felt at home. They made me forget that I was estranged. I was in a strange country. And people were very welcoming and very warm. Even when the apartment was a little bit of a mess, it actually gave me a sense of hope because everybody was motivated and everybody was active. And it gave me a feeling that the future was also going to be dynamic, just like these people were. Mona tells me that she and her two daughters left Syria for Jordan in 2013, after she had been targeted by the Assad regime. When I was leaving, I decided to leave to protect my daughters because they were exposed to a lot in Syria. I myself was exposed to imprisonment and I was exposed to beating. And so I had to protect myself too. So we had to leave Syria. Mona had some money saved, so she was able to rent an apartment. She found various jobs, like working as a seamstress and doing office work. In November 2015, the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, contacted her to see if they'd like to resettle in the United States. They jumped at the chance. Life in America would be more generous to us. Then Donald Trump won the election. It was terrifying. A week after his inauguration, Trump issued the executive order banning Syrian refugees. We were calling the IOM to ask what was going on. They said they would call us back in 90 days. The drama continued. Shortly after the order was issued, a judge halted it. Two days later, a call came. The IOM told them to be at the airport by 1 in the morning. They had four hours to pack. So they filled their suitcases with the essentials like clothing and a silver tea service. And they said goodbye to Mona's older daughter, who had gotten married and was staying in Jordan. Mona cried during much of the journey to America. But when they walked out into the airport, they saw a group of volunteers from the alliance holding signs with their names. And I was so touched by the welcome, by the way they welcomed us. It was like I'd known them forever. It was like they were welcoming family. And I felt a sense of security come over me. The two women describe America as beautiful, punctual, and organized. And since coming, they've seen snow for the first time. Even the snow is beautiful, but the most beautiful thing is that I feel like I'm being treated like a human. Here they make you feel your humanity, that you deserve respect, that you give respect, but that you also deserve respect and that you are something worthy. In the short time since they've arrived, the women have been surrounded by friendly volunteers. But not all Americans feel so welcoming towards Muslims. The most recent FBI data shows that hate crimes against Muslims rose 67 percent in 2015. Still, with Mona's daughter Dima starting high school soon and regularly scheduled English classes for the whole family, Mona is optimistic, in part because of what's now behind them. Didar explains that before the war, they never thought about leaving Syria. Then, after they left, they felt they could never go back because of what they had seen. That's Kari Pitkin from our friends at WNYC reporting. Officials at IRIS told us this week that they've received notice of a new family arriving next week, and they say that they are, quote, so pleased to get their new home ready. Coming up, our podcast friends at Brave Little State tackle a tricky question about race in Vermont. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Last week on our show, we learned about the tradition of town meeting in Vermont, where residents hash out their differences to pass a budget and come up with local laws. But one thing most town meeting attendees and most Vermonters have in common is their skin color. As of the 2010 census, the state was over 95% white. The whiteness of Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, for that matter, is a reality that many of us in New England take for granted. But not Brave Little State, a podcast from Vermont Public Radio that digs deep to answer questions from listeners about the Green Mountain State. Recently, a listener named Eva Gumprecht submitted this one. Why is Vermont so overwhelmingly white? And how does that affect all of us? As host Angela Evansy discovered, the answer to that question has to do with economics and also how Vermonters have seen themselves over time. Angela joins us now to discuss her findings. Welcome back to Next. Hey, thanks for having me back. So this question, why is Vermont so overwhelmingly white? This is a this is kind of a tough question and a, and a bit fraught. Uh, where, where'd you start in trying to answer this one? It is a little fraught. Um, I worked with my colleague, Rebecca Sinanis, on this episode, and we decided we wanted to come at kind of this question and hopefully the answer um, from two different directions. So I talked to some sociologists and researchers um, about some of the historical forces that have shaped Vermont's whiteness over the past couple hundred years. And Rebecca interviewed several people of color living here in Vermont today. Some of them grew up here, some moved here as adults. And they talked with Rebecca about some of the challenges that they face uh, living in such a white state. And so we were hoping that that kind of present day personal angle balanced out the historical angle to give kind of a, a holistic answer to this very complicated question. So a, a really interesting thing for me is just understanding why African-Americans didn't really ever settle in Vermont in large numbers in the first place. Why not? Yeah. So to kick things off, I talked with Sam McReynolds. He's a professor of sociology um, and the chair of the Department of Society, Culture and Language at the University of New England in Maine. And he says, you know, if you take the long view of Vermont's history and look at some sort of macroeconomic forces, um, there were a couple big things that kept African-Americans in particular from getting established in a, a big way uh, here in Vermont. So the first part of the answer, and probably the most obvious, is the fact that Vermont was the first state to abolish slavery. We did this back in 1777. Um, and what Sam says is, you know, that meant there was never a baseline population of black people here um, that kind of would have already been here even after slavery ended across the country. My view is that not just for Vermont, but for northern New England, for New Hampshire and Maine as well, that the situation was structured in a way that without large-scale farming, without large-scale industry, without having had a slave population to deal with large-scale farming, there simply wasn't a foundation or a base for drawing people in. So that was that was one sort of macro force that Sam and I talked about. And the second one um, had to do with the industrialization that the Northeast saw that drew many, many, many African-Americans north. Uh, they mostly went to cities. And even though Vermont did have its own industries that were also drawing people in, things like mills and granite quarries and marble quarries, those were creating low-wage jobs um, that were attracting workers, but they were attracting 
immigrants as opposed to African-American migrants. Yeah, it's interesting. The the workers who ended up in these mills and quarries during the Industrial Revolution in Vermont uh, didn't really look like the the immigrant population or the African-American population that came to a lot of other Northeast centers. So who exactly were the workers that ended up there? Yeah, there were a lot of French Canadians. Um, Sam McReynolds told me, you know, it was much easier for French Canadians to come across the border from Canada into Vermont um, than it was for an African-American to make his or her way all the way up north to Vermont. And there were also a lot of European immigrants, you know, Italians, Poles, Swedes, um, Irish people. And the presence of immigrants in Vermont working these sort of low-wage industrial jobs according to Sam McReynolds, was one of the reasons that so few black people came here during the Great Migration. And this was when, you know, six million African-Americans moved up out of the South starting around World War I. They presumably could have taken some of these industrial jobs in Vermont, but for the immigrants that were already here. Mm. I want to play a little clip from an interview that I did uh, back on the first episode of our show. I I was talking with Colin Woodard. Uh, He's a historian and an author of the book American Nations, Uh, And he was talking about what immigration looked like back in the 19th century, specifically here in New England. The model was not that immigrants could come and settle an entire community of whatever it be, you know, Poles or Irish or Italians or, or whatever immigrant group it was. Our model was the melting pot, which is a very different thing. The idea is, yes, you can come, but you are supposed to assimilate and become like us, right? You're, you're supposed to melt away your differences into our uh, stock of stew. Now I want to jump into a clip from your podcast, uh, Angela. This is Sharana Henderson. She's African-American. She moved to Vermont from New York City when she was pregnant with her son. And we were going over names, and my son's name is Hayden. But we had a few names. We had Micah. We had Malcolm, which was my favorite, and um, Darrell. But I brought it up to someone that one of the names I really wanted to name him was Malcolm. The look on their face was almost like just pure disappointment. And they had probably known me for like a day. They said, well, that name is going to be really hard for him because it's going to disable him in the future as a person of color. You should stick with something easy like Sean or John. That's such a fascinating uh, statement that she makes there. And it's a little bit sad and, and very, very powerful. And it really, I think, Angela, fits in with this idea that Colin Woodard is talking about. Um did you hear a lot from from people of color you talked to, uh, this pressure to blend in, to be part of this this melting pot that is the traditional Vermont, New England identity? You know, I think less than sort of pressure to blend in. I think what my colleague Rebecca heard in the interviews that she did with people was really just a very intense very intense and pronounced awareness of their difference, so to speak, um, because Vermont, it, you know, lacks this racial diversity. Um, so, you know, we heard from one woman who moved to Vermont from the Midwest uh, when she was an adult, and she said coming here was an awakening for her uh, because she wasn't aware of her color as much in Wisconsin, where she had lived previously, as she is now in New England, and it's much more present and on her mind now. Um, Another young woman that Rebecca talked to um, came to Vermont as a child. She's from Ethiopia, and she was adopted by a family in northern Vermont. Um, And she told Rebecca that when she was growing up, she thought that the only life that existed for black people was adoption or foster care. Like that was the only sort of model of families and and children that she saw um, and that she experienced. 
And, you know, we also heard from people who felt scared or threatened by members of their community um, or, you know, when they were driving around Vermont's back roads with no cell service. Um, So I don't necessarily think it was melting away difference that we heard was on people's minds so much as that difference is really, really pronounced for people in a state that is so white. Now, later in your episode, you get into uh, another idea that whiteness in Vermont is is not always just about skin color, that not everyone you or I might think of as white necessarily fits this Vermont mold. It's it's an idea of Yankee whiteness. What what can you tell us about Yankee whiteness? Yeah, this was a really interesting part of the the answer to learn about um, w- when talking about Vermont's whiteness, because even that word, you know, is really loaded. Um, and when we're talking about Yankee whiteness, um, it's more than just a skin color, right? It's like a set of connotations. So when you think of a Yankee, you probably think of someone who's flinty and thrifty and hardworking. Um, and you are probably imagining someone who's white. Uh, And so this idea of whiteness being wrapped up also with a particular identity, that's something I talked about with Robert Vanderbeck. He's a researcher at the University of Leeds in the UK, um, but he spent time in Vermont um, several years back and wrote a really fascinating article um, about whiteness here in 2005. And he really stresses this idea of Yankee whiteness as a social and cultural construction more than just like, you know, an objective reality. Um, And he argued in his paper that, you know, the Yankee was considered, quote, racially benign and pretty open minded when compared to the Southern white, you know, which is associated with Jim Crow laws and more overt racism. But in his research, he found a little bit of a different story. Let's listen to a clip from your interview with Vanderbeck. He's reading from a passage from the 1937 book by Ellen Anderson, We Americans, a study of cleavage in an American city. Walking down the streets of Burlington, the visitor sees nothing in the appearance of the citizens to give any impression of cleavages in the community, of barriers separating group from group. On a Saturday night, for example, with stores open until nine or half past, the citizens of Burlington, the farmers from the country, and visitors from nearby towns all mingle together. In this moment of common activity, they all bear the stamp of Americans. But to a Yankee farmer, they are not all alike. To him, Burlington has a lot of foreigners. As he walks along the main street, he looks in vain for a few faces which remind him of the features of Calvin Coolidge. Were there efforts in the state of Vermont to keep the state populated by people who, uh, quote unquote, looked like Calvin Coolidge? You know, to a certain extent, there were. And Robert Vanderbeck dug up some really interesting examples of basically what amounted to recruiting white people to Vermont, Um, though some were more explicit and others were kind of on the subliminal side. So I can give you a couple examples. Around the turn of the 20th century, uh, Vermont saw a lot of out-migration, people leaving their farms. And, um, you know, this was a problem. We wanted people farming this land. So what Robert Vanderbeck pointed out was there was a kind of a preference for white farmers over black farmers to come farm the land that had been left behind. Um, people of Swedish or Norwegian descent rather than sharecroppers from the American South. So that was one really interesting example that uh, Robert Vanderbeck shared with me. Um, a second was, uh, again, a kind of coded recruitment of white second homeowners to the state. 
So in the 1930s, the Vermont Bureau of Publicity put out an invitation to potential buyers that was directed at, quote, those who teach in schools, colleges and universities, those who are doctors, lawyers, musicians, writers, artists, in a word, those who can earn their living by a professionally trained use of their brains. And Robert Vanderbeck's take on this is that while it doesn't explicitly say, quote, white people, in that era, in the 1930s, it would have been clear that the state was trying to do some kind of selective marketing. Um, And on that note, finally, a third example is this really interesting pattern that Vanderbeck picks up on in Vermont's promotional materials for tourists, especially in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, on the covers of Vermont Life magazine. Um, And he saw they were repeatedly featuring, you know, white faces, white snow, white New England village with white steeples, um, and kind of, again, repeatedly reinforcing this message about what Vermont looks like and who Vermonters are. So it's almost like they they spent time and effort curating a type of an image of what a Vermont Yankee looks like, and then they would use that image as a way of, I guess, for lack of a better word, policing who fits in and who doesn't fit into that culture that they've created. Yeah, I mean, a a kind of cultural policing. Yeah, it's... uh, a very, almost like a subtle feedback loop, right, where the image kind of then attracts a a certain type of person and that sort of reinforces itself. Vermont's not the only place in America, of course, that has been historically white. Uh, A place like Iowa is also thought of as a very white state, but it's been diversifying uh, much more rapidly. Here's Here's a clip from your interview with C. Winter Hahn, a sociologist at Middlebury College. What we're seeing in Iowa is that we're seeing a lot of the meatpacking industry that used to be in the Chicago area and other sort of metropolitan areas. And those types of industry tend to draw, um, not only do they draw Latino laborers, but they also actively recruit Latino labor. But in Vermont? Even though Vermont is a very rural state and we have farms here, we don't have that type of large factory farms it would not be as cost-effective for Vermont farms to recruit Latino labor. If Vermont pushes sort of this idea of small-scale artisan farming, and that sort of reflects Vermont values, right, then that limits the type of people who can sort of come here and work in those types of places. I guess I'm wondering how you see a place like Iowa and the diversity that that he's talking about and the reasons for that diversity stacking up against the reality of a modern Vermont that doesn't have the same sort of industry. It didn't have the same sort of industry back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution that would bring in people from all over the world or from from the South and African-Americans. And it seems as though it's maintained today. It, It doesn't have some of the the, the polls, as you call them, that would draw Latinos from elsewhere to come work there. Yeah, Vermont's economy and sort of this small scale nature of it is definitely something that appeared in almost every kind of chapter of this um, answer that I tried to put together. And this was a really interesting nuance to get into, um, because as C. Winter Han pointed out, there is this certain kind of progressivism in the state and specifically what we're talking about as it relates to valuing small businesses and small-scale farming, that can come at the expense of creating an economy with really significant labor demands. And I think Han's argument is that 
if Vermont had factory farms or multinational corporations, the labor pool that those sectors would demand would inherently be more diverse. Um, But the catch, right, is that those types of businesses are at odds with what many people consider to be an important part of the state's identity and authenticity and, you know, valuing our history. And so, yeah, what we have are a lot of progressive ideals in Vermont about inclusivity and open-mindedness and so forth. Uh, But a lot of Vermonters might not get to practice those ideals on a day-to-day basis um, if their communities are racially homogenous. It's interesting, Angela. I won't ask you to to play uh, a political observer too much, but I, I did note that during the uh, the almost successful uh, presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders, one of the things that was said over and over again was that here's a candidate who, who embodies so many progressive values, but he just can't figure out how to talk about race or can't figure out how to talk to Latino people or black people in a way that makes sense. And it seems to be borne out in some of what your sociologists and other researchers are telling you that, that Vermont doesn't really have that ability to understand beyond the the broad progressive themes how to really talk across difference in a way that the rest of the country has just had to learn how to do. Yeah, that's a really great observation. And actually, um, Robert Vanderbeck, who wrote the paper about kind of the cultural Vermont whiteness, he wrote it back in 2005. And um, the big politician kind of around that era uh, in the national spotlight from Vermont was Howard Dean. And Vanderbeck wrote a lot about kind of the, the, the whiteness that was perceived about Vermont through Howard Dean as well in that time, and even Bernie Sanders too, um, even back then. And again, exactly as you're saying, we saw a lot of that same assumption about what kind of a place Vermont is being borne out um, by by political pundits and so forth. Mm. I want to play one of the more unsettling pieces of tape from from your story. This is Angela Grenier. You mentioned her earlier. Actually, she moved from Wisconsin to northern Vermont uh, right along the New Hampshire border about 12 years ago, and she experienced what she called an awakening, and it wasn't a pleasant one. Let's listen. The first day that my daughter and I were in New England, We wanted to see our new town. As we're walking around, we were definitely aware that the neighborhood wasn't happy to see us. And and within a half an hour, I was spit on and um, also experienced some neighbors who crossed the street to get away from us. The two of us talk about our experiences regularly. My daughter is 26 years old now. She was 14 when we moved. And again, it's been 14 years of her life not really having too many um, racially charged experiences. So when it started to happen to her, it, it rocked her world. It, it really rocked her to her core. And it's something that we talk about almost daily. She left New England the day after her high school graduation, vowed never to come back, and has not. Mm. That's, a, that's a really sad story. Were you surprised by some of, some of these racist incidents that you heard about? You know, I think if we had reported this story a year ago, I might have been more surprised than I was reporting it in January of 2017. Um, if you follow the news even a little, you've seen or read about the surfacing of quite a lot of racism and hate in recent months. And, you know, maybe some of it is new and galvanized by kind of the tone in our country right now. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of it has been simmering under the surface for a long time. 
And I think audiences who haven't experienced racism firsthand are coming to terms with this in a range of ways. For example, even on this you know, one-story post that we had on our website um, for this episode, we had a huge range of comments uh, from disbelief and shock to discomfort and also some really racially charged rejection of the premise of the episode. You know, people saying, you're, you're vilifying whiteness. What's wrong with being a white state? You're racializing this. You're overstating things. Quite a lot of resistance to even the question itself and to contemplating some of these, you know, challenging dynamics. And on the other kind of side of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, we also saw a ton of um, appreciation and gratitude for people, the people who were brave enough to share their stories uh, for this episode, people volunteering their own stories as well. We heard Angela Grenier's pretty tough anecdotes that she shared. Um, We actually had a a local support group reach out to us. Um, They're relatively new. They've come together to basically provide support to people who experience hate. Um, And they asked if we could, you know, put them in touch with Angela so that they could share their support for her and say, you know, hey, we're we're here for you. Uh, And I know she was really appreciative of that. The episode is called Why is Vermont So Overwhelmingly White? And it's from the podcast Brave Little State at Vermont Public Radio. The host is Angela Evansy. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and, and thanks for the great reporting on the story. Thanks, John. It was great to chat. You can find that episode and much more at bravelittlestate.org. Coming up, you've heard about the Harlem Renaissance, but you might not know that around that same time, black Bostonians were experiencing a cultural renaissance of their own. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Today, African Americans make up about 28% of Boston's population, but in the 1920s and 1930s, it was only about 3%. Opportunities to gain political power were limited, but black Bostonians did leave their mark through the arts. It's a period that mirrored the Harlem Renaissance in New York, but it had its own distinctly Boston flavor. It's also a period that's been largely overlooked. Lorraine Elena Roses is the author of a new book, Black Bostonians and the Politics of Culture, 1920 to 1940, that explores this history. Lorraine, welcome to Next. Thank you. Several of the black Bostonians from elite families that you profile in this book were, were interested in the arts, and they were also interested in civil rights activism. Talk about how they were maybe forced to choose between art and politics and how those things intersected. Everyone was involved in civil rights who was black and aware and ready to be active in the cause. There were the organizations, the NAACP, which was its first branch was the one in Boston, Urban League, etc., and black organizing at their institutions. So you say, well, they were also intensely involved in art. So was it a choice? Uh, did one detract from the other? And what I discovered was that the arts, theater very specifically, was part of a socio-political agenda 
to transform society or affect social change? Did black Bostonians have outlets to enter into electoral politics? Well, they were 2 to 3% of the population in Boston. They could win an election now and then, but mostly political appointments was as far as they got. And with so few outlets, then the literature became the channel for their aspirations and also for their fierce criticism of American society. At first, I thought that the writings, anyway, were genteel, very typical of the black Yankee. But if you really read the literary journal that they wrote, you find quite a range, not only of themes, but of political positions. And so I think there, isn't, there wasn't a choice. Uh, you had mentioned the, the term black Yankee, and I'm wondering what you can tell us about that tradition, what that means. The term comes from a book by historian William S. Pearson, who studied mainly the colonial era, slavery time in Massachusetts, which lasted for a century and a half, did not end until 1780. And in the colonial era, under slavery, as we well know, Phyllis Wheatley became a famous poet, not just in the United States, but in England and beyond. And she was a high culture poet along the lines of John Milton, and wrote beautiful, elegant, sophisticated poetry, and nothing to do with folklore, black tradition, but black um, concerns are there. You have to read between the lines. Many came to Boston because it was a shining city where your kids could actually go to school because segregation in schools was outlawed in the 1850s thanks to black activists. And you could even get a college education. One of the figures you profile in your book who came to Boston to advance his career was Roland Hayes. Uh, he was a tenor, a singer from Georgia. And as you write, he actually performed for the King and Queen of England in 1921 before he got recognition here. Then in 1923, he became the first black soloist to perform with a Boston Symphony Orchestra. A lot of his recordings survive from that period. And let's listen to one of the songs that Hayes performed that night at the BSO. It's the spiritual Go Down Moses. You also write extensively about a woman named Maud Cuny Hare. She was a singer and went on to be a theater director and made political statements in her place. Uh, somebody else who came from, from outside of Boston and, exactly. and settled here. T tell us about her. Exactly. Maud Cuny Hare uh, was to the manor born, in a way, a Texan from Galveston. Her father was a prominent Republican political figure. And she learned from him that you have to get along with white people. And her passion was music, and there was the Boston New England Conservatory. So her parents enrolled her for the summer in a school in Rhode Island and then the conservatory. And just briefly, racism struck when Southern students at the conservatory objected to her living in the dorm. But Maud was a musicologist, intellectual. She published articles on black music in the diaspora, that is, not just in the United States, so she was way ahead of her time. She was in love with high culture, high-flying, high-themes, heroics, and she wrote 
plays with music around those themes. And she had protégés, and one of the most prominent was a man named Ralph Coleman. And she groomed him to direct. He had roles in her plays. And then suddenly he and a group of others decided they were fed up with her high culture model. (laughs) It was too high. It was abstract. It was airy. It was about heroics of a biracial prince. And they said, no. And Coleman and the other actors, they were the younger generation. They broke away. And Ralph Coleman founded the Boston Players and then made a big splash when he was hired to be the first black director in the Federal Theater Project of the New Deal under the Roosevelt administration. I, I think it's it's interesting, though. I think one of the reasons that we maybe now celebrate the the Harlem Renaissance is because there was a younger generation of young African-Americans who looked to that piece of cultural history and said, this is something that we need to understand, celebrate, learn from, and preserve into the future. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you feel as though there's there's young Bostonians today who are interested in picking up the mantle of this, of this history. Well, I mentioned Lisa Simmons. Uh, she acts, and I could also mention Kirsten Greenidge. She's a wonderful young playwright. And the Roxbury International Film Festival, there are manifestations that I do talk about in the book. Let me just mention Alan Rohan Kreit. Alan Rohan Kreit's paintings do grace the museums of our country, including the Smithsonian. And the picture that I have on the cover of my book is held by the Boston Athenaeum. And Lois Melo-Jones is a world-famous artist. So that definitely remains. The book that explores this history is Black Bostonians and the Politics of Culture, 1920 to 1940. The author is Lorraine Elena Rosas. Thank you so much for joining us, Lorraine. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Let's go out on another piece by Black Boston tenor Roland Hayes. This is To People Who Have Gardens, with piano accompaniment by Reginald Boardman. For days work and weeks work as I go up and down There are many gardens all about the town For days work and weeks work as I go up and down There are many gardens all about the town Ah yes, those early hints of spring can call to a gardener like a siren song Yet the urge to get one's seeds into the dirt can be dangerous Most seedlings won't survive a single frost To help with that, gardeners use 30-year averages that predict when the last frost of the season will probably occur. The thing is, in New England, climate change has temperatures rising pretty quickly. That left New Hampshire Public Radio reporter Emily Corwin with a question. What I really want to know is if climate change means I can start my indoor seedlings any earlier than the traditional 30-year frost averages recommend. We're getting warm days now, and I want to get my sprouted plants outside as soon as the soil's warm enough. So I venture with my question into a greenhouse at the University of New Hampshire. It has that quintessential greenhouse smell, the smell of damp potting mix, Becky Seidman tells me. She's a horticultural specialist here. I ask, you know, the frost dates are these 30-year averages. Climate has changed in the last 30 years dramatically. And basically my question is, what, what am I supposed to do? So I see this in my 
gardening activities and my research activities. The last frost is getting earlier and the first frost is getting later. But at the same time, my advice to a gardener would be, what I haven't told Seidman is, I've already put my seeds into soil and watered them. It was 70 degrees out just last week. It seemed so obvious. My heart sinks when Seidman says, Don't jump the gun. Oh no. Still, Seidman knows as well as anyone that New England now has 10 fewer days below freezing than it did 20 years ago. And average temperatures have risen 2 degrees here in the last 30 years. But, Seidman explains, climate averages are one thing, weather is another. It's unpredictable, and seedlings are super sensitive. I brought some of my own seed packets with me. I shake them onto a bench. Which ones would survive an unexpected chill? Right, oh, you have bean. a nice collection here. The watermelon seeds. They would die. They would die. Eggplants, peppers, tomatoes, these are really sensitive. Simon says you might be able to start your seedlings a couple days earlier than the 30-year frost averages suggest. But anything more than that isn't worth the risk. Obviously, a frost is sort of a death knell for crops. But even beyond that, many of the crops that we're going to transplant actually are damaged by chilling injury. But according to Seidman, there is still a silver lining for gardeners when it comes to that dreaded climate change. First frost dates in the fall have been extending later and later. In other words, you may not want to start your seedlings any earlier, but you can expect to be harvesting produce longer into the fall. Okay, so I have a confession. You've already started seeds. I started some seeds. <laughs> They'll be okay, though. You know, it's still, yeah. I mean, you, it's not that early. And the sun <laughs> is out now. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Sidemen does have one piece of advice for people like me that is, gardeners who lack self-control. Put your seedlings into the ground before they get too stressed. Then, if the temperature drops, run outside and cover your plants with row covers and then with blankets. Do whatever it takes to keep them warm. I'll be giving that technique a try. That's reporter and gardener Emily Corwin. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from John Billingsley and the PRX Podcast Garage. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.